Do you feel that in a time when we are more connected than ever, we are drifting away from real human connection, especially to ourselves? I do. Hi, I'm Leticia Latino, and I want to invite you to join me and my very inspiring guests in exploring ways to reconnect to your essence, to your definite purpose, to what makes you tick. Are you ready? Hello there, welcome to Back to Basics. My guest today is award-winning health expert, author, and speaker, Nicole Clare, who spent over 30 years working in all sectors of society, including government, nonprofit, military, academia, healthcare, and corporate. She has appeared on CNN, CBS, ABC, and the Food Channel, to name a few, so I'm very happy to have her <laughs> in Back to Basics. Nicole shares her unique perspective on wellness, lifestyle, and nutrition. In her book, Your Deathless, she shares with the reader how a near-death experience taught her how to fully live and not fear death. Hello, Nicole. Welcome to Back to Basics. Well, hello, Leticia. I'm delighted to be here, and thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to speak with you and your audience today. I really appreciate that. Well, I'm very happy, and you know, as I did more research on you, and you have an incredible webpage and resources, I'm like, oh my God, I might need like three episodes with Nicole, <laughs> because she's done so much, and uh, there's so much wisdom just, you know, exploring your, your webpage, which of course will be on the show notes, but you know, I, as, as the show says, Back to Basics to me is learning about, you know, the origin story, and uh, where were you born? What were you passionate about? And, you know, I not to give it away, I know you went into the military. So that part of your journey, could you share it with us? Absolutely. I'd be delighted to. I was born, uh, my dad was in the military. Uh, he was a graduate of the Air Force Academy and then transferred to the Marine Corps because the Air Force wasn't tough enough. So uh, he, <laughs> okay. he, he was uh, stationed in Florida and flew helicopters. And I was born in... Camp Lejeune, North mm, Carolina, oh which boy. is a, about 33 miles from where I presently live in New Bern, North Carolina. So I have literally made a 360 degree geographic turn back to where to come home. I've come home to myself in so many ways, but it's also been a geographical coming home as well to where I was born. Oh, so wow. lived in the South, Mississippi. Mm. Yeah, Jackson, Mississippi is where I was raised my formative years. Um, so I understand very much about the racial issues. I went to public school for three or four years, and it was predominantly African-American. So that was a huge lesson for me to learn to integrate into that environment. Mm -hmm. um, and then after high school, I went into the Air Force Academy because I was a people pleaser with my dad, especially. I wanted to be his girl because mm. he thought when I came out at 10 and a half pounds that I was going to be a linebacker for the Dallas <laughs> Cowboys that weight. And instead it was a girl. So mm. even though there's four siblings uh, and I have two brothers, I was the one that was going to, you know, please him. And I got accepted. They had just let women into the military academies. Mm. The first class graduated in 1980. So mine was 86. So mm. they were still trying to figure out 
how to do that properly. And there was still a lot of resentment from a lot of the men there that women were A, allowed into the academies and B, just trying to work out the logistics of how do you train men and women together when it's been an all-male institution for decades. Mm, Wow, that's a lot there. Like I can only imagine being one of the first women and, and maybe as you say, being a people's pleaser that it wasn't really, really your passion or you would say that, yeah, that there was some passion there. There was no passion. Mm. I am, you know, in high school, I was the head of a teen modeling board. I was the National 17 Magazine representative from Mississippi. I did things like that, you know, in terms of athletics. It was more what I would call soft sports like racquetball, Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. softball. You know, I wasn't varsity athlete in anything. And so I took ballet, you know, things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, the drill team, like the New York City Rockettes. I wasn't an athlete. And that really, you know, was to my detriment because a lot of it, especially at the beginning in boot camp, it's all physical, of you know, course. and it's about push-ups and sit-ups and, you know, all of that. And I just, I just, my body, I'm 5'11". Okay. So <laughs> I'm just, I'm a tall woman and it just didn't, I don't know. It wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't my soul's journey either. And I, Remember in boot camp, and I talk about this in in the book, after the first three weeks, you get a phone call home because cell phones weren't in in 1983. Mm -hmm. And and I remember we got a three-minute phone call, and I called home, and I heard my mother's voice, and I started crying. And the whole three minutes, I couldn't quit crying. I just was hyperventilating. And it took me years to figure out that that was my first panic attack, because what I was waiting for at the other end of the phone was, oh, my God, what what happened, Nicole? You can come home. I wanted permission from my parents to say, you can come home. If this isn't the right fit for you, come home. And my dad was like, no, you just stay there and tough it out. You'll be fine. (laughs) And I wasn't fine. And that's just the problem, you know. And so I did tough it out for the next year. And then at the beginning of my sophomore year, it only gets harder academically. And it's a science degree you come out with. Well, my sophomore year, I started subjects like electrical engineering, you know, things like I'm like, I don't you know the first thing about double E and have no interest in it, you know, and that that was really my academics were just going to get harder and harder and harder. And I knew that. And I just felt like it was not the place for me. You know, I, I just, I knew it in my heart, but I couldn't quit. I understand the shame of quitting and disappointing your family, your friends. Uh, you have to get a congressional nomination to get into the academy. So it would be disappointing you know, uh, the representative that nominated me and most of all, my father, I just could not stomach that. And Mm. so the beginning of the sophomore year, we had a big kickoff of the semester and our squadron had allowed alcohol at the event. And needless to say, I was the last to leave and got a ride back with a senior because we didn't have cars as as sophomores and freshmen. And I never made it back. And the epilogue of the book is what will blow your mind because my roommate, who I have not talked to in 39 years since the the accident happened, she came to the hospital, but she quit that semester in December. 
And no one, she didn't tell anyone why she quit. She just left. And she loved the Academy. And we did a Zoom call a couple of months ago, right before the book was going to be published. And she shared what, why she quit. And it, I went into um, a dissociative state and shock when I understood why she quit. And you'll have to read the book to, to find out. But it really makes the case about blaming yourself for things that you're not responsible for and how much shame and guilt we carry for those things that are not allowing us to live our lives. They sabotage us. So it was a revelation. I couldn't, I just couldn't get my head around it. And so it wasn't my fault. I always thought it was, you know, my dad and my mother both blamed me for breaking my dad's rules, which were no smoking, no drinking, and don't date upperclassmen. Well, Uh I'm going to school with 4,000 guys. How do you not, you know, at 19 years old, want to at least look at them and get interested in them or whatever. So anyway, the wreck happened and it was a Corvette convertible, 1965, and it flipped. And I don't remember any of it. I remember Mm -hmm. the guy wanting to stop at a bar and then stop and watch the sunset. And I had told him, we got to get back. We have a curfew at the Academy to be back on Sundays at 7.35. And I was really worried about starting out the year with demerits and getting in trouble because that's just, you don't want to do that. And uh, needless to say, my memory, I don't remember anything except bright white lights until you know, I woke up in the hospital the next day, about 12 hours later, and I couldn't believe, I just looked around and I just, I was horrified because I was in so much pain and I didn't know what happened. Uh, And so my memory came back, Letitia, 19 years later. Oh my God. Wow. So I want to tell your audience that that's called repressed memories. It's trauma. And when your body feels safe enough, it will reveal the trauma, the memories, if it's to your highest and greatest good. Wow. That's powerful. Yeah. For 19 years. So I had no idea except the bright white lights. And I asked my surgeon, could that have been the operating room lights that I saw? She said, no, Nicole, you were unconscious. So they had pronounced me dead at the scene. And it wasn't until the pair of the uh, ambulance, it was a volunteer ambulance uh, crew that got there first. And then the other fire department got there about 20 minutes later. But John Hartling is the EMT that I credit with saving my life because when he got to the scene, they had covered me up, had the blanket over me and pronounced that there was a group of people standing around me and said they couldn't get any kind of pulse or any kind of semblance of being being alive. And so he told them that he checks the victims himself and pulled the blanket over. And the only sign of life he could get was that my right pupil dilated. Mm. And what do they say about eyes? They're the window to our soul, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. So my soul was still trying to hang in there. So they got these mass pads on me that they had just um, put on the bus to push all the blood up to my heart, got me to the nearest hospital, which was a community hospital, not equipped for trauma. And I wound up staying there for four months with 
uh, one stint going over to the Air Force Academy Hospital. Six major operations in that time, seven weeks in ICU, and it was just up and down. You know, I'd get better and then I'd get worse. And, you know, I broke my pelvis on both sides. I amputated my left foot. I broke my wrist in two. I had a real bad road burn from skidding on the the pavement. You know, I was just a mess. And and cut a fourth degree laceration between my um, anal and sphincter. So I cut up all the insides of my thighs, which saved my spine and my brain. But it totally, I had to have skin grafts and a lot of surgery and, you know, co-blued on two of the operations. So I wanted to leave a couple of times after that, you know. I imagine, (laughs) of course. Oh my God. Yeah. And And so it took a while it took about a year. I had to go into rehab and learn to walk again. They didn't think I would, but I did. And then I went back to school and got my degree and realized I wanted to go back into nutrition because I developed an eating disorder pretty much right after the wreck because my mother did not believe in mental health. And this goes back to basics. When you look at the wellness wheel, there are four parts of it. There's the physical there's the mental, there's the emotional, and there's the spiritual. Okay. And they were just focused on the physical, get you better and you'll be fine. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It wasn't dealing with the mental trauma. She told them that Jesus and God were my psychologist and I would be fine. And I come from a Southern upbringing in the Bible Belt, which is very much um, Southern Baptist and Lutheran is how I grew up. So the concept of God was he loved you and he was also judgmental, punitive. And if you didn't follow the rules, you were going to go to hell. Mm. Wow. I mean, you, you've heard that in certain religions, right? That's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. That's not, yeah, it's not unfamiliar to you, right? Mm, absolutely not. Yes. And I'm Catholic. Yeah. So yeah, I've heard. I've heard yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of guilt and there's a lot of shame and there's a lot, this is the right way to do things. Right. And this is who God is. And that was my belief at 19. So I was terrified of dying when I was in the hospital those whole four months. And because I thought I had done something bad to cause the wreck, you know, and I didn't, the guy was drunk and he, what I later learned 19 years later, he made a sexual pass at me and I declined it and he got mad at me and and uh, drove off the road going at a really high speed. And that's and, why. And what happened to him, if I may ask? Um, he was in the hospital a week. He had some scratches on his back. And he had a dad who was a three-star general in Washington to be able to let him graduate from the academy. Oh, wow. So, wow. so talk about privilege, allowing you to, any other cadet would have been kicked out on honor code violations. And just because the state of Colorado charged him with vehicular assault, you know, reckless driving, DUI, and he pleaded out on those. And, you know, uh, what can I say? Yeah, that it's, uh, yeah, you're leaving me speechless. Like, and that doesn't happen that often. (laughs) And uh, yeah, it's, wow, that's a lot. But so that, that's the wreck part. What I want to really focus on is the reason I wrote this is when my memory came back, I was working at the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, and I came out of Starbucks, as I did every day going to work, mm-hmm. got in my car, and Letitia, I sat there, and I remembered exactly how I sat in the car the day of the wreck. 
Mm. That was the first memory that came up. And I was like, now that makes sense. How I cut my foot off and how I cut up all the inside is I had one leg on the the dashboard, you know, how you're cool. And then you fold the other one over like a triangle. So you've got one foot up and you're leaning back and the other foot's crossed over. That's how I was sitting. So I went butt up through the windshield and cut up all of that. So I was like, oh my gosh. And then the memories started coming and I I went to my doctor instead of uh, my body work doctor, instead of uh, work that day. And I started recalling going to the other side it was a male angel that picked me up, male spirit, and up we went, and I could see myself lying in the ditch, and that I was dead, and I could see what I had on, and I was like, oh boy, wow. uh, and, and there were other uh, spirits, kind of like Casper the ghost, but without form, and I understood exactly their conversations. They were talking about how if we, as humans, would ask for their help They are there to help us, but we have to ask for help and they're not going to intervene because of free will unless we do, unless it's an emergency like mine, they'll, they'll come in and lift you out of that situation, but it has to be an emergency and, Mm -hmm. uh, mine was, and I have to tell you the male uh, spirit or angel that was there told me that I was going to go back and I was. It's like, oh, no, I don't want to go back because mm. I could just see the pain and the suffering I was going to be put through. And it was unbelievably beautiful, blissful. I was like an astronaut in outer space, just this cocooning. I, there was no pain. There was there was no negativity. There was no nothing where I was. You know, it, it's beyond words. You know, there were colors that we don't even have in our Crayola color box, you know, uh, that exists. And I think the reason that we, most people see white when they have a near-death experience is because white is all colors combined, right? Mm. So you can't remember all these other beautiful colors. It just all goes into white and it doesn't blind you no matter how bright the light gets. So it was so comforting and so peaceful and so beautiful and so uh, just brilliant that I didn't want to come back. And uh, and the lesson was I, I was going to and I was going to tell people to not be afraid of death. Wow. Okay, so that's 20 years later, I get this message. And I'm like, how in the heck am I supposed to do that? <laughs> Wow, that is that is incredible. And that, and also the clarity with which you're saying it, like you can tell, like you can still sense like if you were there. Yeah. And I'm not like other people that that had all these other things happen. They were there a long time. It was pretty much a clear cut. I felt it. I got a sense of it. I didn't want to come back, but it's like having to rewrite my contract. I'm coming back specifically to fulfill spirit, God, whatever you want to say, message, because so many people in our society fear death on an unconscious basis. They may think they're okay with it, but in my book at the the end, there's a book discussion and there are, there is a checklist of, you know, what fears do you experience when you think about your own death? And, you know, is it, you don't want to leave your family alone or you haven't fulfilled your life's purpose? 
business or you don't have a legacy. I mean, it makes you think about these things and we don't want to think about them because we are what I would say in a death denial society that we uh, think of death more in doom and gloom. And I really want us to switch that and become a culture that looks at, I've coined this term, eternality advocate. And that means everlasting. It means ceaselessness. And and I just think that that word is what our spirit is about. It is eternal. We are all these sparks of God that as soon as you die, your soul leaves you and becomes this spark of light and goes back to where it came from. And we really have to look at how much fear is going on in our society right now and what it's doing to people, you know, and fear keeps you from so many things, but most of all, it keeps you from living. And that's the other part of this. When you fear death, you're not going to, you're not going to truly live your life. Mm, that's that's good. And it, and I'm curious, would you like as you were talking about the the end of the book and that exercise, which sounds great in terms of what what each person fears about death? Did you have your own like, can you recall what was your own perception of that before all this happened and and what it happened to you afterwards? Yeah, um, well, growing up, Baptist and Lutheran, both of those religions are Protestant, and both of them have a view of God as duality. So God loves you. God's there for you. He will protect you. You just call on him and all of this wonderful stuff will happen. And then if you break the Ten Commandments or if there's other rules that you're not, you know, supposed to do, then God is going to judge you. He's going to punish you. There's a place called hell that we're taught, and that's the place that people that are sinners go if they don't repent. So at 19, my concept was I'm going to go to hell because I was somehow, my dad blamed me for this. I, I did a bad thing. I was a bad girl because my whole entire life, I tried to be a good girl, a people pleaser. And so here's the one time I go out and you know, I have some fun and boom, you know, I just get nailed. Mm -hmm. And so I really was terrified when I woke up in the hospital of dying again, because I had no memory of the other side. And all I knew was the white light, but I couldn't make sense of that. And then I had my parents come in And basically, I was reduced back to infancy. I couldn't do anything on my own. I couldn't go to the bathroom. I couldn't walk. I couldn't speak. I mean, a couple of operations. I had a ventilator, so I couldn't even you know, breathe on my own. So it put me in a dependency role at 19. When most kids, you're launching yourself, you know, and getting away from your parents. Here I am going backwards. And so in order to survive, I have to take on their belief systems again. I don't dare defy them. And so it's taken me a long time to let go of that because they're still very dogmatically positioned about their view of God as the right view. And coming from the Bible, you know, the Bible says this, so therefore it is true. And what I have come to learn with a lot of 
these religions is they want you to stay in fear so they can control you. And the message I got was God is none of that negative stuff. God is love, period, end of sentence. Mm -hmm. There is nowhere God is not. That's beautiful. And I totally you know? agree. I totally agree. Like, you know, I'm uh, as a Catholic myself, I went to a nuns school, all girls nuns school for like 15 years. So pre-K to, uh, to high school. But and I do feel and I do felt at some point that I needed to read the Bible cover to cover and get like a book and get my own impression of of my religion and what I believed in. And definitely institution and, and the faith itself, there's there's a disconnect there somehow. And it's a, it's a shame because I think a lot of people get turned off to of the God of to God, whatever the God, you know, whatever your definition of God is because of the institutions. And that's that's sad. Yes. And I say, you know, in my book, I call it the vending machine concept of God, mm -hmm. because you look at God and if you do the right behaviors and if you put in the right amount of money and push the Coca-Cola button, then you should get a Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. But what if a Mountain Dew comes out? Mm. Then you go, uh oh, what happened? Something went wrong here. That's not what I wanted. Or nothing comes out. You know, you know, I remember phrases in the Bible, ask and it shall be given. I don't know how many times I asked God for help for something and nothing happened, you know, mm -hmm. and then seek and ye shall find. I mean, you can take specific verses and you go, there's no evidence that you were there for me. There's no, because the God that I had created, the concept of God was that it was external, that God was not within me. And that is a huge issue and a huge problem because we are all sparks of God, every single one of us, you know, and to think that you have to go through this person or this institution or only this person knows or this group knows how to get to it, that's completely wrong. And if we could all just accept that, you know, God is just love, but you look at religions and they're the ones that have started most of the wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's incredible. Yeah, instead of being inclusive, it is divisive in essence. So I, I can only imagine. So I'm curious. So you you got you embark on this mission, which is beautiful, and definitely I I I see how how you have a powerful message to give. And so in in this message of you are deathless and dealing with the fears, and you talk to a lot of people. In your experience, what do you think is the thing we people fear the most? Uh, dying alone and dying in pain. Those are the two. And the thing is, death itself, I do not to this day, Leticia, remember any pain from the accident, breaking all of those bones, the glass shattering, all of that. I don't remember any of it. Okay. I remember waking up in the hospital and being attached to, I think I was on 10 IVs. Oh okay. God. I had to have 64 pints of blood transfused. That's like do, redoing your system five times, wow, what, eight wow. times. It's a lot. Okay. It's a lot of blood, a lot. but it really, um, I'm sorry. What were you saying again? I got lost in no, my that, description. No, no, that's fine. That we were talking about that, that what, what, in your opinion, what do people fear? And you say dying alone or dying in pain. Yeah. So dying leading up to death may be painful, 
Okay. And that may be because, you know, you're, you have a terminal disease that causes a lot of pain. That's why they put you on morphine. But the actual moment of death, when your soul, that breath leaves your body, there is no pain, 100% no pain. You are guided on this wonderful journey to the other side. Okay. And you're not alone on that journey. And as far as dying alone, I think that is a worry, a fear of the person that's still living. They're in their human form and they're worried about that person dying alone. It's not usually the person that's dying, that's scared of dying alone. And a lot of people choose to die alone. My brother-in-law died of, of ALS and he had a house full of people and he chose to die when no one was in the room. You know, so it's really up to that, I think, that individual. But you have to know in your heart that you are never alone. There's always the spiritual realm, the angels, the guides, the your deceased loved ones. You're you know, they're always available to help. We just have to call on them. And that's something that we forget to do. We think we're alone and we have to do it all. But we are never, never alone. Mm. That's uh, yeah. I'm of the I'm of that belief too. And so let's say that somebody is listening to this and say, "Well, okay, but you know, I don't I don't know. I don't feel it. So what what should I do to start not feeling alone? To start nurturing that side that gives me that trust that I'm not alone? Is it prayer? Is it meditation? What 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 would you say? I would say you have to learn to love yourself, and you're going to have to look at yourself. And this is where the work becomes, or the transformation that I talk about, about being spiritually transformed. You have to look at your belief systems that no longer work for you, okay, that are sabotaging you from being the being that you were created to be. And if that's being a people pleaser, where all you do is you are worried about pleasing your mother or your grandmother, doing everything they ask and tell you to do. At the end of the day, being a people pleaser, I'm telling you, you feel like you're a roach that got stomped on. There's nothing, you know, or a bug, you know, you get nothing from that. So you have to start going why do I believe this way? And is it because it was generationally passed down? Is that what I really believe? You know, and when you start asking those questions, a lot of this is unconscious programming. And we have to get at that level of unconsciousness to go, you're getting triggered present day. It's something that happened to you in the past that's very similar that you never dealt with. So those emotions are sitting in you. And if you don't deal with them, in my opinion, they will start causing dis-ease. And one for women is anger. You're not allowed to get angry. You can't get angry at your mother. You don't hurt your mother. A lot of that fourth commandment, honor thy mother, thy father, you know, it's if they're toxic people, if they're narcissistic people, that does not apply. You know, they're abusive people. And there is something called spiritual abuse. And that's abusing people with the, you are bad, you are shameful. How could you do this? How could you not believe this way? You know, and it's just criminal to me because that is shaming people and nothing good comes out of shame. Nothing. Yeah, I totally agree. 
So, Nicole, I always give my guests an opportunity to share. I mean, you're already an author. You, I can see why all the big, you know, TV stations called you to speak because your (laughs) message is very unique and very much needed, I believe. It's a subject that we all I, I agree. Uh, try to avoid in, in in this side of the world. Is there anything you're working on that is exciting you? Anything you want to share with the audience that we haven't discussed? No, I'm just you know getting this message out. The book just came out August uh, mid August, and it already has gone to number one uh, in the best selling category for NDE, oh. which I'm actually just blown away. But I think it's because I. I exposed myself and I had created an image prior that I think when people that know me read this, they go, I didn't know you had an eating disorder. I didn't know that you did this or that or the other. So all these things that I've been ashamed to put in there uh, uh, to tell people, I put in the book and I talk about my dad and his, you know, and his rules, his commandments, you know, in addition to the others. And It's not always a pretty picture, you know, but this is my truth and my story. And I came back and have survived several near-death accidents to get this message out. And I'm finally, Letitia, in alignment with my mind, my body, and my spirit before I had cut my head off kind of and just my intellectualized things, you know, like I could say, oh yeah, I'm angry at him for this, but my body didn't feel it, the anger. It was kind of cut off. So I've had to learn to embody emotions. And I think a lot of us run around like that. The head's kind of disconnected from the body and totally feeling something and being present to that. So that's where I would start with a lot of people is look into these techniques that try to get your mind and your body on the same page. Uh, there's everything from, you know, EFT to neuroemotional techniques. There's lots more coming out about this whole subject, about the subconscious, you know, running the show, so to speak. We know better than to eat a pint of Ben and Jerry ice cream in one sitting. But when you're stressed and you don't know why, you're going to eat that whole pint and it's going to, the dopamine rush is going to make you feel good for that minute, you know? So that's why knowing something and then getting triggered with a stress response are two different things because that amygdala, that fight, flight, or fear that sits back there, it's going to hijack that prefrontal cortex and your executive thinking just goes right out the door and you go, the hell with it, I'm eating that whole pie. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, that's a beautiful way of putting it. That's what's like a boom, 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 the whole process on how we get uh, that rush, right? That sometimes yeah. is not the best for us. So, so Nicole, my last question for you is what makes you tick in moments where you feel disconnected? You need to go back to that essence. What, what, are, what is your go-to thing? I loved that question that you put in the podcast. And I think what makes me tick is nature. When I see animals, you know, just being in the presence of the miracle of nature the birth of, of, of animals. And just, you know, I adopted two Pekingese dogs a year and a half ago, and I've never had dogs. And those dogs have just expanded my heart. And what helps me take is connecting with other people that are open-minded and light-minded and that are light workers and bridging the old and the new, because that's the times that we're in right now is 
the old ways of doing things are collapsing slowly and we're going to a new way of being. And I believe people like myself and others that are trying to get this message out, you know, to start looking at belief systems that don't work for you, to start letting go of these identities that don't serve you, figure out who you are, loving yourself, quit shaming yourself, quit giving yourself messages. I should have known better. Cut should out of your language. Well, that just take it out. I love that uh, ending thought of, uh, you know, just got that word out, the shoot. And uh, yeah. yeah, that's an actionable advice. And I thank you for that. And I mean, you've shared so much of, of, of course, what was for you a, a tragedy, a big event that really changed the course of your life. But judging by what you're doing right now and the message you're bringing to the world, it's it's really what they say, uh, something good comes out of every bad situation. You're, you're the living proof of that. So thank you so much for being on Back to Basics and for sharing this with us. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. And I just, you know, blessings to you um, and everyone through the holiday season and just take good care of yourself. You know, you are the most important person and you can't take care of others unless you're taking care of yourself. So, you know, if you can go to www.nicolecurr.com, you can read a lot about what I'm doing. I'll be happy to send you a free sample chapter at the beginning, but the book is on Kindle now for 99 cents. Uh, so you can't beat that. But I think if you don't like it, I will give you your money back. Okay. <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's a fascinating read. So thank you for sharing that. Everything will be in the show notes for you to find it easy to reach it. And uh, you know, to all my audience, thank you for tuning in, for listening and uh, wishing you a good one. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Back to Basics. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite streaming platforms. This is the best gift you can give us. Join me next week for another Back to Basics conversation. And if you want to find out about other exciting things I'm working on, visit LeticiaLatino.com. Thank you, and until the next time.